Well, welcome everybody. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I can't say enough how absolutely delighted I am to um, introduce our speaker tonight, Professor Wendy Carlin. Um, Wendy's Professor of Economics at University College London. She's a fellow at the Centre for Economic Policy Research and she works on a range of areas on uh, macroeconomics, on institutions and economic performance, and on uh, the economics of transition. And amongst her numerous publications, she's co-authored three widely read books. I dare say a number of you have read some of them yourself, the most recent of which, Macroeconomics, Institutions, Instability and the Financial System, um, came out last year, co-authored with David Soskis from the London School of Economics. She's also um, on the expert advisory panel of the Office of Budget Responsibility um, and she's actively involved, I think, in a number of other policy debates. Indeed, um, I can say for a fact that some politicians have tracked halfway around the world to seek out her advice from time to time. As if uh, that's not all enough, um, in the wake of the global financial crisis, She's been leading an international collaborative project to reform the teaching of economics in universities. And it's that that she's going to be talking about with us today. The project is based at the Oxford Institute for New Economic Thinking and it has the subtitle, Teaching Economics as if the last three decades had happened. Well, Wendy's going to talk for about uh, 50 minutes, I think, and then there's going to be a lot of time for question and discussion. But can you just join me, please, in welcoming our speaker, Professor Wendy Carlin. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, yes, so this is a cartoon from Le Monde um, in the spring of last year, and you can see that there's, there's a... Uh, professor on the right, money bags, juggling the money bags and with a calculator in his pocket and there are some sort of lost looking students wandering around and wondering whether to consult him or to consult the bloke uh, planting a flower. So this somehow captures uh, some of the, the debate and uncertainty about what students should be learning when they study economics. So what should we study when we study economics? This is the probably the definition that those economic students in the room might give. Economics is the study of human behavior as the relationship between given ends and scarce means. That was uh, the famous Lionel Robbins definition. So economics, as usually taught, is not about power. An economic transaction is a solved political problem. Economics has gained the title of the queen of the social sciences by choosing solved political problems as its domain. So this is what Abba Lerner said in the American Economic Review in 1972. And he also featured at the LSE um, in 1936 for a year. And that's him up there from the LSE archives. This is Ralph Miliband. He, in some sense, was asking the question, what should we study when we study politics? And it was roughly th at the same time as Lerner's, the, the quote from Lerner in 1969, very early on in the state and capitalist society. So he says, this, however, does not mean that Western political scientists and political sociologists have not had what used to be called a theory of the state, thinking of that as what 
uh, students of politics should study. On the contrary, it's precisely the theory of the state to which they do, for the most part, subscribe, which helps to account for their comparative neglect of the state as a focus of political analysis. For that theory takes as resolved some of the largest questions which have traditionally been asked about the state and makes unnecessary, indeed almost precludes any special concern about its nature and role in Western societies. A theory of the state is also a theory of society and the distribution of power in that society. But most Western students of politics tend to start judging from their work with the assumption that power is competitive, fragmented and diffused. So let's go back to what Lerner was saying about economics, this queen of the social sciences. Uh, and here we have, around the same time, Alkin and Demzetz, a very famous article saying, the firm has no power of fiat, no authority, no disciplinary action, any different in the slightest degree from ordinary market contracting between any two people. Wherein then is the relationship between a grocer and his employee any different from that between a grocer and his customer? Well, about 30 years ago, things began to change in economics. And again, it was someone at the LSE, Oliver Hart, who said this. Well, the reason, in answer to this, the reason is that a grocer can deprive the employee of the assets he works with and hire another employee to work with these assets, while the customer can only deprive the grocer of his custom, and it's presumably not very difficult for the grocer to find another customer. It may be very difficult for the employee to find another job. So it's about time we started teaching economics by extending its domain to unresolved political problems. So that's why we should be teaching economics as if the last three decades had happened. And I'm very pleased to be here. I'm very um, proud to be here. Uh, that's a photo of Ralph Miliband here. And I took the photo. Um, so this, is, this has personal resonance for me as well. And Marion is here, um, and so are my children. So uh, that's how I'd like to start off the lecture. So this is uh, an insight into what I'm going to be talking about, which is the core project stands for Curriculum o Open Access Resources in Economics. And this is a little clip over here of the e-book, and I'll show you a bit of it live a bit later on. This is... The Italians were very quick off the mark. The project has only been going for a couple of years and they produced a translation and a physical book for use in Siena last year. Here we've got it being taught at Sciences Po in Paris where they get flowers in their lecture theatre. This is the more austere setting of UCL and here are students in Cape Town also uh, using the material. So the point to make is that the way we're teaching economics at UCL, where the project is now based, is not as a supplementary course to an ordinary course in economics that students get. This is the replacement for the standard economics course. So, yeah, it's been adopted as, at, at, at UCL, at Sciences Po, at Azimpremji University in Bangalore, and actually lots of other places around the world. And when you get bored, you can, on your phone, you can register for, for, for the e-book and actually start looking at it as, we, uh, as I uh, 
tell you about various aspects of it. Let's begin by thinking of a, a, a cohort of new students coming in to university and what are the kinds of questions that they want answered as a, as a result of engaging in the study of economics. So these are the answers given by a group of first-year students on their first day of class in Bogota, Colombia. So they're asking questions like, how did, how did different countries manage their economy? How can we understand what's the best model for the country? If banks are so big, why do they fail? How do we achieve sustainable development? At UCL on day one, I want, I want to understand the causes of the financial crisis. So these are the big questions that students are entering um, our lecture theatres with when they come to study economics. And this year at UCL, uh, even before they started in the orientation week, uh, they were asked, what's the word that captures um, what, what you think e economists should study? And it's very striking that the most frequently mentioned word was inequality. Um, and, and when I mentioned this to Tony Atkinson, uh, uh, he, was, he was totally delighted. So, uh, and I guess Thomas Piketty might be as well, and might even have had something to do with this. That was students at the beginning. Let's think now at students at the end of their careers. So this is, a, this is a student who's graduated, Natalie Grisales. She's got her diploma here, so you can see that she was a successful student. And she said, before I chose economics, a professor mentioned that economics would give me a way to describe and predict human behavior through mathematical tools. That possibility still seems fantastic to me. However, after semesters of study, I had many mathematical tools, but all the people I wanted to study had disappeared from the scene. So she was somehow disappointed, uh, having come in very um, enthusiastic for the study of economics, but she left disappointed. And those students at her same university are asking, how do I model the real world in a mathematical way? How do I bring elements from psychology into economics? And most students, this is what they get when they come in to study economics. So I've um, given a sort of representative sample here of uh, the bestsellers. So this is Greg Mankiw's book, then from the other side of the political spectrum, Paul Krugman's book, and you can see that this is about supply and demand, how markets work, the market forces supply and demand, supply and demand. This is about supply and demand, supply and demand, uh, individuals and markets. And then uh, this is a book that's often used as the first book in economics degrees where students have more mathematical training before they come. And oh, let's have a look, yeah. Uh, optimization and equilibrium, the demand curve, the supply curve, market equilibrium. So somehow this is where students start their studies of economics. So let's think if a course in economics were to start differently. This is where the, the core course begins. So we start with uh, the capitalist revolution. What's all that about? Well, one thing we do is to place in front of students from the very beginning these very long time series of data. So this is the year 1000, and this is a comparison of living standards measured by GDP per capita in the year 1000 through to the present day for a, a sample of countries. So the UK, Japan, Italy, China, and India. And 
what we've got from reports of travellers at the time, so around this period here, is that a Moroccan traveller, traveller, Ibn Battuta, was wandering around the world and writing a diary, and he was remarking on the fact uh, uh, about how similar the degree of opulence was that he reported in India as compared with North Africa and Europe at the time. So what is very uh, evident and what we want to draw students' attention to is that, okay, this is the long bit, really boring, nothing, 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 everything looks pretty much the same, and then things start to change. So this is England here drawing away, and we can uh, think about this. The image that comes to mind is that of a hockey stick, an ice hockey stick. So what's really interesting is this, where steady growth begins. And it's at that point that the great divergence in standards of living across regions in the world, which is what the students experience okay, when they're coming in, that's their experience of what the, the world looks like to them, which is given by this picture right at the end. And what you can also see is that there's not just one hockey stick, but there are other hockey sticks Right? Look at India, almost exactly matches the shape of the ice hockey stick. So this is the, 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 the starting point for the course. And what we, we found when we were thinking about this was that there's not just one, one hockey stick of uh, GDP per capita, but we can look for all kinds of other measures as well. So this is actually wages of carpenters in London, data from 1260 right up to the present, you can see it looks kind of similar to the one of GDP per capita. We also gathered data, this is the year 1000, on the speed with which news travels. So you can use documentary sources to look at how fast news travels and you see an upward tick about 1800 where, you can, where it goes from roughly one mile per hour to 2.7 miles per hour, which is the news of the Battle of Trafalgar uh, gets transmitted to London. Okay, so we can measure that at 2.7, and then there are two episodes with actually Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's election and Lincoln's assassination that mark these two points here at 7 and 12 miles per hour. Then there's the transatlantic cable, and news travels extremely fast, so the line is vertical after that. This is climate, okay, what's going on in Paris. So this is another hockey stick starting in the year 1000 of the deviation of temperature in the northern hemisphere from the long-run average. And again, you can see, okay, something is happening. This is beginning to look like a hockey stick. <clears throat> so these are the, what we want to rivet the attention of students on to, to think this is a really interesting problem. How do we explain... The, this upward tick in these different hockey sticks and how are they related one to the other. So this is uh, where I'm going to see if I can make the technology work, except someone's taken away the keyboard, which would be... Ah, uh, here we go. Right. Let's see if I can show you this. So this is the website. This is where, what you can go on to after the lecture and download everything for yourselves. And Data essentially allow us 
to discriminate among alternative explanations. I think theory can be useful, but I think sometimes economists uh, spend too much time doing very sophisticated theory without knowing what are the facts that they are trying to explain and understand. Right. Okay, that's the advertising interlude. But that's, uh, that was um, Jim Heckman, the Nobel Prize winner from Chicago, and Thomas Piketty, both now passionately engaged in empirical research on inequality and coming together to argue that economists really need facts and that our students really need to be introduced to empirical research right from the start of their uh, careers learning economics. This is, uh, comes directly out of a concern with inequality. So this is, again, something that, that we can introduce very early on. This is a way of depicting uh, the income distribution in an economy. It's called a Lorenz curve. If, everyone had an, if in, incomes were equal across the economy, everyone would be lined up along this perfect equality line. And the further away we are, the more inequality there is. So the point about this is that we can see that the state is playing a substantial role in reducing inequality, shifting the market distribution towards the uh, distribution of disposable income. So if we're going to understand questions of inequality, we have to understand, uh, we have to integrate um, an understanding of the state of politics into economics. These are the problems that the students identified. Wealth creation and growth, environmental problems, inequality, unemployment, instability. So what do we need to do differently in teaching a course in economics if we're going to meet that demand to learn the tools of economics in a way that empowers you to understand these questions? And I'll... Uh, what I'm going to do is to give you some examples of this, right, just to give you a tiny taste of how we might go about this. What I'm not going to do is to talk about teaching uh, how we teach all the, the other parts of the toolbox of economics, which the students do indeed learn along the way, but I'm going to focus on what's different, what's new in this way of teaching <coughs> introduction to economics. So the first model that students learn is a model about innovation. It's funny, some students can go through a whole degree in economics, in economics, and, and really have never studied innovation, have not really come across it. And that seems very weird, especially if you start with that data. You think, you know, we have to understand innovation if we're going to understand how the world has come to look the way it does. So this is a very simple model. This is the number of workers along here. This is the number of tons of coal that are used to produce 100 metres of cloth. And this is a labour-intensive method of producing cloth, like a spinning wheel. And that's, that was the, uh, the current technology. And then what happened was that in the 1700s, the uh, price of, uh, of labour relative to coal went up so that we're actually on this line now. And this new technology was... Uh, now, was now profitable, so that's the spinning jenny. So the, the first movers, the innovators, were the ones that introduced the spinning jenny were the ones that got the, the innovation rents and that incentive, that possibility of earning extra profits by innovating is one of the fundamental drivers of the upward 
curve of the hockey stick. Uh, this is an economic historian. So uh, economic students um, may traditionally have little contact with economic historians, but you can meet Bob Allen in, in, uh, in a video on our uh, website, and just in three minutes, probably less than three minutes, he can explain to you why it was England and why in the 18th century that the Industrial Revolution took place. And he'll use images, the model, that will tell you why we went from the spinning wheel to the spinning jenny. Social interactions um, are uh, one of the, the core subjects in uh, coming to understand economics. And it's something that we motivate in the course with questions about the environment. And Juliet Shaw talks about why some of the wealthiest people are working longer hours and what the consequences of that are for the environment. This is the, I thought this would just give you some taste of what the lectures are like. I can actually identify a few students here from UCL, so this will uh, look familiar to them. So this was a lecture given last year. Um, by Antonio Cabralis up there on the left. And he put, put up this slide, and he's trying to get the students to, to go back and think about these climate hockey sticks and to consider the consequences of climate change and figure out how could this have happened? How, how, how can it happen, and how can we think about the way that economics could give us insights into um, mitigating the effects of climate change and, and implementing uh, policies to prevent this, this, uh, these devastating effects from occurring. How do you get students to really experience questions about human interaction? You can, you can put up slides and tell them things, but how do you get them to feel it themselves? One way that we do this is to have games and experiments run in the classroom. So this is a typical experiment. So you're, you're placed in a situation where you're in a group of, uh, of 10 students. Each student's given 10 pounds. They're not actually given 10 pounds, I don't think. Uh, but you have, to, <laughs> you have to imagine what would be the case if you were given 10 pounds. You can keep the money for yourself, or you can put some of those pounds into a box. If you put the money into the box, then for every pound you put in, 40p comes back to you and 40p goes to each of the other parties. So the, your decision is, how many of those pounds do you keep for yourself, knowing that everyone else is sitting there thinking about how to make the same decision, and how many do you put in, in the box? And we can do that in the classroom, and we can look at the results. So in the class at UCL, then the, the most common response, so 34% of people put all 10 pounds into the box. Okay, so they were willing to imagine that other people would also put money into the public good because there would be a dividend coming from that that we would all share, but we would have got that if we hadn't put anything into the box, as long as everyone else had done that. Okay, so the, the next question is, is that just a weird characteristic of students at UCL? And the answer is... No, we can actually show them experimental evidence everywhere from Minsk to Melbourne and show them that basically people behave in the same way. So people put quite a lot of 
the pounds into the box. But what, what was not done in the classroom is that if we'd repeated the game ten times, then people become less and less willing to do so. Okay? So that's interesting lesson as well. And then we can do something else. We can say, well, you know, that was all anonymous, but suppose now you have to stand up and say what you're doing. Right? You have to reveal publicly how much you're putting in the box. We sustain the contribution to the public good. So this is interesting and it shows you that the rules really matter. Okay, so we've learned something about human interaction and we've learned something about the rules of the game. But again, is this just what happens in the lab, in the classroom, in the lab, in these experiments around the world, or is it something that actually happens in the real world? Well, to find the answer to that, we ask uh, Juan Camilo Cardenas, who does experiments like this with people living on the Pacific coast of Colombia who are engaged in common resource problems, in fishing problems, fisheries problems, for example. And he, uh, he's, he's conducted these experiments and he gets very interesting results. So I won't tell you what they are, but you can, um, you can go on, online and see for yourself. So let me move to a, to a different topic. Uh, one of the, the issues that typically comes up is something that students want to have a more um, analytical way of thinking about is unemployment and fluctuations. And this is just really to indicate that what we're doing in this project is something different. Um, and it's interesting, this, this is really kind of, looks like really old, but actually it's 2015. And this is in the Journal of Economic Literature, and it says here, the choice of a textbook for most principles or intermediate courses probably is inconsequential for learning because of the similarities in content coverage and pedagogy in most textbooks. And you saw that, I showed you that, just by picking that, that, that sample at the very beginning. And what I'm trying to suggest is that what we're doing is very different from that traditional approach. And one of the ways of highlighting that is to talk about um, the, this question of macro and micro. So typically students do in their first year something called microeconomics, which are the decisions of households and firms, individual decision-making, and then there's something different taught by someone different and probably someone who's never spoken to that person over there at all uh, called macro. And that's about big numbers like inflation and the balance of payments and unemployment and growth. Okay, But somehow the two are not uh, brought together. And what we've done in building this material is, uh, which, which is built with a whole load, lots of different people, some of whom work in micro, some in macro, some in both, is to eliminate this split. And it allows us to avoid a whole series of ad hoc assumptions, which are usually made as soon as you cross that border from micro into macro, and people start making assumptions that prices are sticky when you spend all of your time in micro figuring out why prices are moving, and then suddenly, oh yeah, well, they're sticky when it comes to macro. So that seems very unsatisfying. So we teach the microeconomics of labour and credit markets right from the beginning and then that allows us to move seamlessly into talking about unemployment at the level of the economy as a whole. A second uh, reason why it's so easy to move from uh, the discussion of, of individual decision-making and social interactions into the implications in the macroeconomy 
is that we make price making rather than price taking the central case. Now, this will sound very abstract. It says, uh, uh, how do we teach micro and macro consistently? Um, what, what's this really all about? Well, I think I'm just going to give you one example. So we can think about the labor market. And the, the key idea to get across, and most people, students who are coming into the classroom in the, for their first economics course, almost all of them have had a job. So they know, they actually know about the labor market. They've experienced the labor market. And the one thing they know about the labor market is that it's, it was impossible for there to be a complete contract between the employer who employed them and them. In other words, they were hired for 15 pounds an hour if they're lucky, or 10 pounds an hour. Uh, so they, the contract was about an amount of money for a period of time, but it didn't cover the effort that had to be exerted, how hard the person was going to work. Right? That couldn't be written down in the contract. And that's a, a, a really crucial and intrinsic characteristic that distinguishes between labor markets and markets for, for pencils or iPods, okay? So, or, or bread. If you buy a loaf of bread, you know exactly what's going to be inside the packet. That's just different in the case of a labor contract. This is, is uh, we, we make this argument within a very general way of thinking about the way e economies work. And the way to think about it is that when you think about any of these things, like driving your car rather than taking public transport, a question about training, a question about employment, you affect others. This is the, the really crucial um, thing I want to, to draw your attention to. Other people experience costs or benefits from your actions. Okay, And th th those costs and benefits are not uh, covered by any kind of legal contract. So if you impose a congestion cost on someone else, you can't go around and get... Uh, so you impose the cost on them. They can't come to you and get compensation from you. Right? So that's what's called a market failure. And this is a whole series of different kinds of market failures that all fit within that broad framework. Okay? I'm not going to uh, go through them now, but just to give you some sense of this overarching view of uh, thinking about market failures that includes the labour market and the credit market. Let me move swiftly through this. You'll think otherwise you'll think you're in an economics lecture, which would really be at this hour of the day really too much. So this is just to give you some sense, some of those of you who are kind of somehow, where, where was the economics? You need a kind of diagram like this with a tangency and optimization problem. This is, in fact, the, uh, the best response function. The employer is figuring out, okay, I've got to get effort out of my workers. They're going to give, give me more effort the higher the wage I pay. On the other hand, the higher the wage I pay, the lower my profit. So I've got to trade, work out the point on the trade-off, which is going to be here. That's going to translate into the, the macroeconomy and tell us something about why there's always unemployment in the economy, in the macroeconomy. Why is there always unemployment? Because there always has to be a cost of losing your job if the employer is going to get you to work hard and diligently. 
there has to be a cost of job loss. Right? And if there's a cost of job loss, what does that mean? It means that if you lose your job, you can't immediately step into another job. If you can't immediately step into another job, that means there's involuntary unemployment in the economy. So that's a characteristic of the economy, and that means we can never have a crossing of a demand and supply curve clearing a labour market. You might say, well, that's all very well in theory. Well, let's look in practice and get some data and actually plot a wage curve for US workers, okay, so that we can move from the theory into, into the empirical, um, uh, if you like, validation or the notion that this is something to do with how the world actually works. This, this is probably going to put you even further to sleep. But you know, you know, some of the questions that those students were asking who were interested in studying economics, was to, some of those questions were to do with maths. People know that economists have, have ways of, of analysing the world that make use of mathematical tools. And that's part of our job, is to teach students how to use mathematical tools to engage with important problems. And what we do in, in this course material is to use things called Leibniz supplements. And you, you should, your immediate question should be, why Leibniz and not Newton? Since, uh, okay, the calculus was, was simultaneously uh, invented by Newton and Leibniz. Newton would have been a lot easier because people find Leibniz hard to pronounce and Leibniz's is somehow a very clumsy, it would be better to say Newton's. But anyway, the, the, the decision between Newton and Leibniz was settled by the toss of a coin. So this is, uh, this is a typical Leibniz where the, the, the model that we saw before is then translated into maths and that gives a different way of understanding the, the material. We can use the model of unemployment to answer the question of what keeps inflation low. So we can think about it in terms of stronger competition, weaker insiders, or recession. So we have a unified framework from the decision of the worker, how much effort to exert, the firm, what wage to set to maximise their profits but get enough hard work out of the worker, to the aggregate economy, unemployment, and now inflation. Another one of our economists in action, uh, Katie Grady, is, gives, us, gives the students an insight into one of the, the really powerful uh, visions of economics that came from Hayek, which was the idea that prices in the economy send messages. And they, they send messages about how resources should be allocated. So when there's, when there's a scarcity, the price goes up, and that draws resources into that particular activity. So prices as messages is, this, is a very powerful um, insight. What Katie Grady did was, uh, for her PhD was to get up every morning incredibly early and go to the Fulton fish market. And she went to one particular fish stand every morning. And she sat there and wrote down the price of whiting. And she collected this comprehensive data set of every sale of whiting 
by this one particular fish seller. So it sounds like a very competitive market. The, the Hayek should have been very delighted about the, the messages that were being sent. And what she found was that there was a systematic difference um, in the price of whiting that was charged to Asian and non-Asian purchasers of whiting. Now, I will leave it to you to, to guess about who was getting the better price for whiting and also why this was the case in what we would think of as a really classic sort of competitive market setting, an open market for fish for a, a, a uniform product of whiting. But, so it's all very well about these prices sending messages, but they can also send the wrong message, as we know when we see a bubble in the house market or in the stock market. And um, we, uh, we, we have a series of when economists disagree, you can't really see it at the top, but um, th there was a great Nobel Prize in 2013 uh, given to Eugene Farmer and uh, Robert Schiller they, they both won the prize. It was, it was a wonderful episode because they completely disagree. Totally disagree. So Schiller made his reputation explaining how bubbles can develop in financial markets and Farmer denies that the word bubble has any useful meaning at all. It's, I think it's very useful for students to understand that there are disagreements among economists and also to see that in some cases the disagree disagreements can be resolved and how we use evidence, um, for example, to do that. Right, so this is this, this student again. I want to understand the cause of the financial crisis, so I will just show you an assignment that students were given um, in the UCL course. So they're asked to apply the tools that they'd learned to 100 years of economic history from the Depression to the financial crisis. And this is, ah, there we go. Okay, so that's the question, typical kind of uh, question which says, right, here we are, we're going to answer his question. You've got to use what you've done in the course to analyse the causes of the 2008 financial crisis using as a model what you've learned about the, the Great Depression and using a whole series of concepts and models that you've come across in the course. The theme of inequality is, is here again, where, where you're asked to think about the consequences of uh, the inequality between the top fifth and the bottom fifth of households in terms of the, the debt structure of their balance sheet and how that affected the crisis. So I won't dwell on this, but just to show what we could use from thinking about early 1929 uh, before the Depression, then when things are more or less in balance with people's target wealth equal to their actual wealth, then what happens, a whole series of events that, that, uh, that students have read about mean that people become very worried even if they've still got a job that they might lose their job so they think that their expected future earnings are going to go down. The value of their financial assets have gone down. They've still got the same burden of debt. So there's a big gap now between their wealth and their target wealth. So what do they do? They start saving. And that generates a decline in spending and helps push the economy into recession. 
Here we use data, we use a model to implement that, and then you can apply the same ideas to the build-up of the housing boom, the subprime crisis before the crisis, and then see a similar uh, pattern play out as occurred, in the, as occurred in the Great Depression with the collapse in spending. As that debt burden, the blue, stays the same, but the value of assets shrinks. <clears throat> okay, now, now for something different, and I'll uh, just have a hmm. glass of water. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I thought I'd just stop for a second and talk about the innovations that, that we've, we've um, sort of stumbled upon, really, in this process, this core process. So the first thing is the content, and I've given you lots of illustrations, I think, uh, or some sort of suggestions about how the content is different. The second difference is the origination of the material, and this is... So how did we develop all this, this material, this new material that's being taught? Well, it happened this way. A large group of economists from all over the world comes together in a joint effort. Small teams take responsibility. Much, a much smaller group unifies and, as one of, one of these co-workers said, gives the final write-up a soul, okay, so that it's not just some sort of collection of, of uh, contributions from different people. It's knitted together. Then there's the revision process. We have people using this material from Lahore to Santiago to Birkbeck to Dartmouth to Budapest to Cape Town, uh, piloting the text, seeing what their students think, giving feedback, and, and making it better. Evaluation, uh, we can, we can, uh, we're getting in, in process this mechanism for figuring out how effective this is in helping students to learn the tools of economics, how effective it is in keeping them interested in economics as a subject, and perhaps in recruiting different kinds of people as students of economics. Uh, the textbook is free online interactive. That's different. And the classroom is different. Students come to class having interacted with the text, where they get new material, they participate in experiments, they interact in class and some, so the sort of idea is that this should be some kind of uh, experience more like a video game than, than just watching TV. You're not just a spectator. I mean, you've kind of been like the TV watching. You've just, you know, had to sit there and listen. But um, the ideal situation is that we should be moving to one where we get students to interact with the material ahead of the class and then in the classroom there's much more you know, two-way engagement. So much less passivity. The last t uh, topic I wanted to touch on was um, about inequality. Here we have, uh, I showed you some economists who disagree. Here we have economists who agree. And we have some very strange bedfellows. So this is uh, Ronald Coase from the University of Chicago. Um, He, he was described by Forbes magazine as the greatest of the many great University of Chicago economists. And the motto of Forbes is the capitalist tool. So that's, that's uh, Ronald Coase, and his bedfellow is Karl Marx. And they share a vision 
about power in the firm, how you should think about the firm. And Coase defines the firm by its political structure. If a workman moves from de department Y to department X, he does not go. He does not go because of a change in prices, but because he's ordered to do so. So the firm is a domain in which power is exerted by employers over employees. And on that level, um, Coase and Marx were in agreement. This is, from the this is from the lecture on inequality uh, at UCL. Uh, the, the idea is to get students to look at this picture, to think, well, this is an interesting bit of Photoshop, until you tell them this is a picture, this is one photo, a single photo, no Photoshopping involved. Right? This is a Brazilian city. So that tells you something about inequality. This is a, a three-dimensional uh, depiction of inequality, global inequality, and it, and it was developed by a previous Miliband lecturer, Bob Sutcliffe. And what we've got here is all the countries in the world, from the country with the lowest GDP per capita, all lined up to the country with the highest GDP per capita, which is Norway. And then from the front is the, the poorest 10% in each of those countries back to the richest 10%. Okay, so you can see that there are skyscrapers along the back and the skyscrapers get bigger, but it's a pretty uneven picture. And for example, the richest country of the world, you can't even see very clearly the top of the highest skyscraper. But when you think about it, that's because Norway's skyscraper is much of the top 10% of the population, is beneath that of the United States, because it has a much more egalitarian distribution. Right? So it's just a snapshot that allows you to get this picture across the world and across countries. If we're going to understand economic inequality, we have to understand institutions. And if we're going to understand institutions, we may as well start with pirates. So uh, why, why start with pirates? Because pirates had written constitutions. And this is the constitution of, a, uh, of an 18th century pirate ship says, every man has a vote in the affairs of the moment, has equal title to fresh provisions. And then Article 10, the captain and the quartermaster to receive two shares of a prize, the booty from a captured ship. Right? What do the rest of them get? The master, blah, blah, blah. A share and a half, and the officers and the quarter, and everyone else gets one share. So we have, in the constitution of the pirate ship, we know who does what, and we know who gets what. So we know the institutions that governed the pirate ship. We also have the data from that, right, from the Constitution. So we can, we can calculate the Lorenz curve and look at the degree of inequality on the pirate ship. This is the rover. So you can see it's very close to the equal distribution line, very low inequality on the pirate ship. As it happens, at the same time, there was an, a British Navy ship out there and it captured a, um, a Spanish galleon, the Isabella. And we also have the data about how that booty was divided up among the crew of the, of the active. And you can see that this is bowed out really a long way from the line of, uh, of, of equality, so the pirates were more uh, egalitarian than the navy. That's not surprising, and you might, you might think about you know, what explains that, and um, I'll let, let you ponder on that. 
we can calculate the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of inequality, and on the, the Navy ship, this is roughly the level of inequality in South Africa. And the pirates are much more egalitarian than any, uh, any economy for which we have data. So the, the most equal economy we have data for has a Gini of about 0.2, which is one of the Nordic countries. We can put together institutions, these rules of the game, technology, and develop a framework for thinking about inequality. And then we can go again and look at the world and think, okay, let's look at the period of the, after the, the Second World War. This is the US data. How were the benefits of technology shared, of innovation shared? Well, look at this long period. They were shared out pretty equally, right? Productivity was growing like this real wages were growing pretty much in line with productivity. But then something happened, right? And suddenly you see this massive split, real wages stopped growing much at all, while productivity continued to grow. So that's going to ask, put questions before us. What were the changes in institutions? Were there cha in interacting changes in technology that produced this change in pattern? We can ask similar questions about the, uh, the much earlier period, look at the role of institutions such as uh, trade unions winning the right to vote. How did that affect the speed with which real wages uh, managed to take advantage of improvements in technology? If you're doing a standard course in economics, you spend a lot of time talking about preferences and technology. We fill in the middle so that you also talk about institutions, but also the effect of biology or demography, for, for example, and produce a much richer understanding of who does what and who gets what. And you can watch a video of uh, economic historian Suresh Naidu from Columbia University, who explains how population growth and technological development and political events interacted to produce that wages hockey stick um, the data that I showed you. So we can think of a red thread running through the teaching of, uh, of inequality, how we do that within the study of economics. And that, that is a new thing that, that uh, we're doing in this course. And it requires us to introduce power, the division of rents. Uh, we have to go beyond the market if we're going to have an understanding of economic inequality. We want to, in terms of the normative issues, the evaluation that is done in economics, this is the traditional question, is the allocation efficient? Would there be mutual gains from moving to some other allocation? That's, that's what we really concentrate on when we think about the evaluation of a policy, for example. But what we're doing is saying that we should put on equal footing with that the question of, is the allocation fair? Is there some other allocation that would be fairer? Are the rules of the game that produce the allocation fair? And we should be giving students a language with which they can think and feel comfortable talking about this question as well as about this one. And one way of doing that is to put students behind a veil of ignorance by asking them Rawlsian-type questions. You know, we're going to drop you in somewhere to some country in some century. You know you're going to be in the bottom 10%. Which of those countries would you choose to be in? 
Three strategies have been put forward to change the curriculum in economics. One is you could say the free economics approach. Same content but better examples. A different approach is let's have a whole series of competing paradigms, let them fight it out in the economics classroom. And the third is the one that we are pursuing, which is a new paradigm. So let me uh, perhaps remind people that this has happened before. There was a new paradigm. The textbook by Samuelson that was brought out in 1948 that incorporated the Keynesian revolution. So it was a response to problems, new problems in the world that found their way eventually into the classroom through a textbook, um, which has really been the basis of economics textbooks ever since. <clears throat> so this is the standard old benchmark model. What are people like? They're far-sighted and self-interested. They interact in price-taking markets where there's full and complete information. Economic rents are bad. They're caused by governments. The economy is self-stabilizing. And the question that we should always be asking is whether there are unexploited mutual gains. If economics is defined like this, then it neglects what we know from other social sciences. So all of that is just kind of neglected in the, the standard benchmark model of economics. If instead economics or the economy is embedded in society, then learning economics includes those things. And I hope I've given you some taste of where we can introduce those things in a first course in economics. So instead of that old benchmark model, we can have a new one, which says that people also have, have motives in, in, in addition to self-interest and respond to social norms of fairness and punishment. <coughs> Interactions include price-making markets and strategic interactions not only in markets. We, should, we have to extend from a world of full and complete information. We have to think about institutions that are not just markets. <clears throat> Economic rents are everywhere in the private economy. They're not just something that's caused by government. They're often good. That's what is the incentive for innovation, is that possibility of getting the innovation rent being the first mover. And both stability and instability are characteristics of the economy. Evaluation should include efficiency, but should also include considerations of fairness. So what's this? This is, yes, it's a tanker. So the question is, uh, can the tanker be turned? Well, it's happened before. Uh, the tanker was turned with, with Samuelson and the Keynesian revolution coming into textbooks. The question is always asked, um, are you throwing the baby out with the bathwater? And the answer to that is, uh, well, the baby's not doing very well. So this is all about saving the baby from the bathwater. We've got more than 17,000 registrations for the, the economy produced by that big core group that I mentioned. Some days there are 10,000 page views, so things are happening. Join us, uh, try the ebook, get involved. That's what it looks like. So that's it, teaching economics as if the last three decades had happened. Um, and these are the credits. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much. Um, <coughs> we've got a good period of time for questions, so um, let's just see who would like to start us off. Um, I'll, I'll just Before I take people, can I just ask you to say who you are and, and where you're from? Um, this gentleman here in the third row, please. Hi, uh, Darshan Raghani. Um, I'm based here in London. Having recently graduated in economics, it's really exciting to see what you've done, albeit slightly late for myself, but I have two questions. Um, the first is, have you involved the private sector in this endeavour, and if not, why not? And the second is, um, what has the traction been with other universities or other institutions? Because I assume there's a lot of vested interests or um, desire not to change the status quo. Thanks. Okay, would you like me? Yes, yeah, please, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Private sector, yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so what, what, the way this started was literally a group of people thinking that, that they should do something. And so there's been a huge input of voluntary contribution by academics um, who, who wanted to change the way economics was taught. And uh, the, the, the costs have been covered by the cost of producing the e-book, the online presence and so on, by grants. But we realise that we have to move to a sustainable, um, a, a sustainable model to keep this thing going. And I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting moment. It's a very interesting moment for the publishing industry. So there are some publishers who are sort of hovering around um, who are interested um, because I think they're also feeling threatened with their own business model for textbooks. Uh, but there's a great attraction to us in, uh, some, in the kind of open source um, uh, method that, that we've been using. But on the other hand, we have to... We have to uh, we have to get a revenue stream. So somehow we have to make make those uh, square the circle, if you like. And um, so there, there are a number of ways that you could imagine <coughs> private sector involvement, not just by publishers, but by other. Um, so there are some companies have actually showed some interest. Then the question is, you know, should we? How, how could we? We involve them, but retain the independence of the academic input into the project and so on. So there are a lot of uh, very interesting questions. Um, but if, you're, you know, if, you're, if you've got good ideas, then um, I'd be very happy to hear them as well. Uh, so in terms of places that, that are using it, um, we're in the beta, so we're in the running this through the second beta at the moment. The idea is that the 1.0 version will go live in 2017. Um, so before then, we've got the material out there, and we're getting a lot of, we're getting you know a huge amount of feedback because very different settings, in very different places in the world. Um, what's been very striking is is the the way that when you, when academics and universities have looked at the material, uh, it hasn't been the kind of pushback that you're perhaps thinking of. There's, there's really been a, a, a great openness to seeing that economics has a set of very powerful tools. It, the way economic research in many areas, not in all, but in many areas, has 
advanced a lot over the last few decades. And we can do a lot better job in teaching that, if you like, the best of economics um, to, to students. So it's, it, it's not a case, so there, there may well be vested interests you know, among people who've produced very popular textbooks, for example. Um, but, but I think there's an openness among economists and teachers based on feelings of discomfort that they felt, especially in the wake of the crisis and their, um, their kind of paralysis, their inability to respond to what students wanted. So there was a real sense that students of economics were very embarrassed because their, their friends who were studying engineering or physics or medicine or their parents were saying, wow, the world's falling apart, there's an economic crisis. And, you know, what, what can you tell me? You're a student of economics. And the student would sort of be very embarrassed and say, well, actually, I don't know. I haven't really learnt anything that's going to help me explain to you better than what you can read in the Financial Times. So that, that impetus to change has also come from, from economists themselves. Okay. Um, can we have the gentleman in the purple sweater... Um, Michael Blanning, BSc in Monetary Economics, many years ago. Um, Professor Cullen, it's a great pleasure to have heard your, heard your talk. Um, the LSE, when I was here, was prided itself on being at the forefront of economic thinking and economic research in trying to explain the real world. Um, the lemon theory on why second-hand cars depreciate as soon as they leave the forecourt... Um, rational expectations, trying to uh, marry micro and macro um, you know, um, individual agents in a world of imperfect information and so on and so on. Economics has always had these claims. Um, the topics, first. Second, the topics which are of interest to students change, and rightly you, your, your, your curriculum changes. In my day, it was economic, it was, it was, it was inflation and unemployment. Now it seems to be Inequality is right that you change, fine. Um, when I went into work, though, what I found the biggest handicap from studying economics was I've, I've been trying to understand, the, get to the truth all the time. And I thought by studying fancy economic theories, I was learning the truth. And I discovered then, to my cost, when I went into the real world, the truth doesn't exist and you must have a critical mind. And I just invite you to stress that as well as teaching some new truths, if I may... I don't wish to be you know, unkind in that way, you are also retaining um, the, the idea that, in fact, a lot of this is just theory, let's debate it, and because that's the best gift you can give to most economic students who, by definition, don't go on to be economists. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's, that's right. Um, I think that you have to equip students with sufficient confidence and competence in a set of tools that they're in a position to engage in debates. So I think you can't teach debates without teaching the economics, but then, it, as, as I've uh, picked up, you know, just showing you a few little examples here, um, there are lots of points at which you can highlight disagreements among economists and that both really test how well you've understood the different parts of economics, 
and also helps you understand how some of those differences can be resolved. So we don't always have to disagree. We can gather more data. I think one of the interesting questions on which um, there's been a narrowing of differences over the last few years has been the answer to the question of what is the size of the multiplier, right? So that, that, that was a question that uh, politicians, policymakers, needed an answer to from economists uh, very early in the crisis. And when they went and asked them, they all said, oh, I don't know. Um, they really didn't, didn't know the answer. And there seemed to be huge amounts of disagreement. But the research that's been done over the last few years has really narrowed the disagreement. And it's become very clear that the answer isn't a single number. And it depends very much on the context. And uh, you know, there are now a really much better set of guidelines that are available to a policymaker to think about what the impact might be of a 1% uh, fiscal expansion, for example. Um, under conditions that were like those in 2008. So we do learn, but there are always going to be some, uh, s some disagreements, and we need to give students the confidence that they can engage in those debates. Okay, I've got a lot of gentlemen's hands, so if there's someone who's not in that category, please put up your hand. But for the moment, can we have this person with the glasses here, please? Uh, thank you. My name's Joseph Halligan. Um, I'm not an academic economist, but I did graduate in economics 40 years ago from Cambridge University, which was a bastion, of course, of Keynesianism. And um, I was brought up, actually, on Paul Samuelson's textbook, so I know what you're speaking about. I can see that your course would actually be was a lot more fun than slogging your way through the Cambridge University economics tripos and Samuelson and all that. But uh, my question would be, in your course, is there enough teaching of some of the techniques that you actually need to study economics and understand things? I'll give you an example. A lot of your course seems to be about inequality and you're using um, Lorentz curves and Gini coefficients. But do you teach students uh, actually how to calculate them for themselves so that they know what a Gini coefficient is, they know how to calculate one? Because the, there are a lot of people, of course, who pontificate on economic questions, but they don't really understand what they're, what they're speaking about. Yes, that, that's right. I mean, we are talking about teaching students economics, uh, not, not to talk about economics. So they have to learn how to do economics, and that requires that they have uh, competence. I gave you an example of uh, the use of calculus, uh, so the, the Leibniz example. So there are a whole series of uh, techniques, mathematical techniques, that students need to become familiar with to think about certain kinds of problems. Um, they also need to become good at measurement and uh, very skilled at using data. They need to be able to calculate Gini coefficients uh, to understand about uh, price indexes. So that, you know, there's a whole sort of skill set that goes along with developing as an economist. But I think one of the problems has been that there's been very little motivation for students to really, I mean, apart from somehow passing an exam, uh, to really become engaged in learning those tools 
because the questions to which they were being addressed were uninteresting. And part of the idea of, of deeply integrating the motivation with the learning of the tools is that students will, uh, will gain a richer understanding and of exactly the kinds of tools that you're referring to um, rather than simply somehow as a credential. Okay. Um, who, where are we going? This, this uh, gentleman with the glasses in the middle. Just put your hand up so the bloke can... Hi, Joseph Allen, student. I mean, as you discussed with your new benchmark model, there are quite a few lessons that economics as a discipline should have learnt from the last crisis. But if I were to ask you if there's one single most important lesson you think it should have learnt, what do you think your response would be? Uh, well, probably hubris. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the, the biggest lesson is a lesson for macroeconomics. And the... the uh, so the sense of complacency that somehow macroeconomists had a very good understanding of how, to, how policy could be implemented to deliver low unemployment and low and stable inflation was, was very widespread across, uh, across macroeconomists in universities and in policy institutions. I think that has disappeared. So there's now... a a really deep uh, sense that macroeconomists need to understand the financial system and that uh, a sort of sole focus on inflation targeting is inadequate. So I think that would be the, the, one of the big lessons, anyway, that, that have come, that's come out of the crisis. What about your biggest lesson? What do you think? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I've got people down here. I also want to just tell people up there that if they wave their arm around, I will see them. Um, but in the meantime, um, this gentleman with his hand up there. Hello, uh, I'm a student of economic history, and I just uh, passed up, passed the last year, the last year. And uh, after one wonderful year of studying about institutions, path dependency, late development, uh, towards the end of the year we were made to read one paper that said, like, uh, of all the lessons you have learned, just learn to be humble. And humility is the biggest lesson because, like, you can never, be, uh, you can never predict anything. History is just constitutive, uh, constitutive of the uh, present and future, never deterministic about anything else. So the point is, if that's the lesson we learn, uh, how do we approach the facts-based approach to study economics? We, we have, you know, there is like, you might have learned a lot, but there aren't any lessons, solid lessons Yeah, I think it. that's much too nihilistic. I think uh, that, uh, I mean, I hope I've given you some just small snippets of, of insight where you can think, ah, well, I hadn't really thought about it by, like that. Let me go and um, investigate that, that more deeply. So I think that, so I'm absolutely not in the camp that says uh, economics or economists or particularly economic historians have nothing to offer in terms of helping us to understand both what's happened in the past and how to think clearly about policy options um, in the future. 
So I think uh, it, it's, it's quite wrong to, to confuse the fact that we can make mistakes with, with the idea that we don't know anything. Thank you. Okay, anybody upstairs? Otherwise, the distinguished gentleman to the left. I really enjoyed your lecture. Um, can you just say um, how you account for pirate activity in the present day? <laughs> pirate activity? Uh, the, the, I'm the wrong person here. You should have Tim Besley here, who has written very interesting papers about Somali pirates. So I suggest you, maybe you should get uh, Tim to, to, to do a lecture on pirates. Okay. Um, yes, this person here has been waiting for a while. Uh, I'm not going to let you off the hook in relation to the pirate example because <laughs> one thing that had me scratching my head somewhat was trying to figure out whether you're trying to teach economics, or something new in economics, or actually trying to teach economics as it currently stands in a more interesting way. And the reason I mentioned the pirate thing is that if you go to your pirate example, if my memory of history is correct, the Royal Navy ended up wiping out the pirates. Mm. Now, does that tell you that unequal societies are more likely to succeed than equal societies? I think the other thing is that the pirates, if I remember correctly uh, from history, um, elected their captains. So does that yeah. tell you that democracies are more likely to fail than <laughs> autocracies? Uh, just... Wonderful. That's, that's exactly... I, I couldn't have hoped for anything better than such excellent pirate questions. But I think your, your speculations are probably just as good as mine. So are there think about risk. <clears throat> are there further speculations on this matter? Um, uh, yes, the man at the back on the wall there. I'm Dr. Keith Postler, latterly of um, the LSE. Um, what, without um, prejudice to gender issues, um, if economics was the queen of science, um, is the uh, social science, what is the king? Well, maybe we should, have a, we should have a collective discussion about this. I was interested in why he used the term queen. I don't know why, um, but some, someone else here probably has a better sense of this. There must be other social scientists here that... Um, David, how about you? Me? Yes. <laughs> why, is econ why was economics called the queen and who would be, what social science would be the king? Well, I really like to the social as regards the king of the social sciences, since I've now moved from economics to government, now there are, of course, economists who think I've been put there as a colonial administrator, but if you leave that possibility aside, then maybe I should suggest that government is the uh, politics, is the king of the social sciences. Okay, who's, who's waiting to ask a question? Um, this gentleman um, at the back, and then we'll come to you. Uh, Richard O'Rourke, um, thanks very much for your talk uh, this evening. It's been very, very interesting. Um, <clears throat> I uh, came to economics probably late in life, and uh, in fact, my first and last undergraduate lecture in, in economics was, was in this theatre about eight years ago. Um, and 
it's um, my, my formal training is as a physical scientist, uh, physical chemistry. And my first search uh, in the study of economics was to find out how economists explain the role of energy in the economy. Uh, mm-hmm. in the economy. Um, and was surprised to find that they don't really seem to deal with it at all. Um, if anything, they treat it as another factor input in the economy like labor or, or any other resource, which for somebody who studied thermoeconomics, or sorry, thermoeconomics, thermodynamics, um, understands that it, uh, energy plays a fairly fundamental role in anything we do. Um, definition of, which is to pick up on your theme of power in, in, in your talk. Um, for a physical scientist, power is the rate at which work is done and energy is the ability to do work. Um, so my question is, do you have a, a view on the role of uh, th- teaching of thermodynamics in, in an economics course? Um, and then subsequently, you probably gather from my accent, I'm from Ireland, and after my uh, year here, I went back to Ireland in 2009 and yeah. <laughs> uh, got a very close um, uh, look at what it looks like in a banking crisis. So like many of your students in your, in your uh, presentations there, I was very curious to understand what caused the financial crisis. Um, and I spent the last several years studying that aspect of economics and uh, uh, followed very closely the work of Adair Turner, uh, who launched his book here not only very recently. So it's been very interesting to watch kind of his change in, 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 in his thinking about economics and financial systems. Um, and uh, the Bank of England brought out a paper last year on um, that I suppose effectively put, for me anyway, an end to the debate about the money multiplier. Um, and I took a course in economics recently and was taught the money multiplier. And I'm wondering for how much longer are we going to uh, abuse the public by teaching them what is clearly a very flawed theory. Yeah, okay, so your last point about the money multiplier, yeah, there is no money multiplier. Sorry, just, just to finish the point about the power to create and allocate credit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, so, uh, so I think that uh, some people were saying, you know, have we learned anything? Do we know anything? Well, I think, yes, we know a lot more about money and uh, banking than, than is often taught to students. So the idea of, uh, of the money multiplies, this idea of, of uh, some mechanical relationship between people putting money in a deposit account and the amount of money in the economy uh, is... is absolutely round the wrong way and the the amount of money is determined by the lending decisions of the the credit institutions in the economy so i think a, a view of so-called endogenous money is what we should be teaching our students and that will help them to understand uh, what goes on in the world including the possibility of uh, the the development of um, financial crises uh, much better so i think that's a clear step forward your other question was uh, really about how do we deal with the relationship between climate science and um, economics? And this is, this is a good example, I think, of an ongoing debate among members of the project. Uh, so we, we've, we ha- I put that picture up um, of, of the economy embedded in society, embedded in the biosphere. So the idea is that we have to take seriously the environmental constraints, and that also was behind uh, gathering the data for those climate hockey sticks right at, right at the beginning. So there's, there's definitely the sense that we, that we need to understand the, the environmental limits on economic activity. Economics has a a lot of uh, of tools that help us 
that can help us design policies to change behaviour and so on, which, which we uh, come from the, the toolkit that is tried and tested and um, would point towards the use of a, uh, of a tax on carbon. So, we, you know, economics can, can tell us a lot, I think, about how we should design policy um, given the environmental constraints that we face. I think it's a, it's a different question of, of the extent to which we should be teaching climate science within economics. And I, I still see that as unresolved. But I've, we, we've not been... Nobody's really come up with a persuasive way of doing that. So, in fact, in the first version of our unit on um, the environment, we, we do have a section on the law of uh, thermodynamics. And it's, it's been pretty harshly criticised uh, by students, among others, who said, well, OK, you know, we can read all this stuff, but how does it actually connect with our understanding of the economy? And it's, it's not clear that... Um, that how you bring the two things together. So we obviously can teach the constraint, but the extent, it's just not clear how much the science of, of, uh, of thermodynamics is a sort of central part of teaching the economics of dealing with climate change. That's a summary. Oh, yeah, okay. It, it, you know, it's within a bigger context, but uh, anyway, that's, that's where we are at the moment. So you should watch this space and see how the debate evolves. Okay, um, we've got time for... Ah, can I have the man in the white and then um, after that we'll have you. Uh, Alex Martin, I'm a professional economics practitioner. Um, my question sort of builds on the, the pirate question at the front, actually, which I don't think I actually had an answer to. Um, so the, the main thing that I took from the lecture is that you know, when you put your table up at the end, yeah. you had a set of kind of assumptions from a kind of a neoclassical way of looking at the world, a neoclassical economics model. And it seemed to me that the thrust of this syllabus, if you like, is that you're teaching students that in the real world, those hard assumptions are actually a lot more relaxed and a lot softer, and that we should apply that kind of model in a more sensitive way. But what I wanted to come back to is at the end of your lecture, you set out a number of other kind of paradigms, as you put it, for actually teaching economics, so heterodox, for example. And I wondered to, uh, to what extent you think or and why you think your model is the best way of teaching this um, and actually how much space there is within this for teaching contrasting models of looking at the world rather than just relaxing the assumptions to the one that's kind of... Uh, preeminent, if you like, within kind of economics over the last 30 years? Yeah. Okay, that's, that's a really great question. So, uh, and I think you've kind of put your finger on, on what, what we're doing. So we, we are, if you like, extending the, or um, broadening the, 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 the key assumptions along that set of dimensions that, that I listed uh, based on the, the evolution of economics research over the last 30 years or so. Okay, so, uh, so economics has moved from that very narrow, what I called the, the, the old benchmark, if you like, to the new benchmark, which encompasses the old one as a small special case. Okay, 
in a sort of similar way you could think about Keynes. The general theory, which had as a very special case the, the preceding classical model. Okay? So that, that's a good characterization of, of the, the sort of philosophy behind the creation of this new, um, this new par- paradigm. So there are some you know, really fundamentally different moves that we make. And uh, so that just as an example, markets come in much later after institutions have been developed, social interactions have been developed, students learn some game theory and so on. Okay, so that it's a very different ordering of the teaching of the tools of economics informed by that new paradigm. Then uh, you were picking up the slide where I said, well, there are these three different ways you could go about reforming the curriculum. And one is to say, well, the old paradigm, the sort of Samuelsonian one, is great. We just need better examples. And that's the way most of the, the variations have, have uh, emerged. And then there's a very different one, which I think you were highlighting, which was to say... Uh, there, are, there are some really quite different ways of thinking about the economy. So I don't know what you had in mind, but you might have in mind, a, 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 which touches perhaps on the point over here, uh, somehow the view of ecological economics, or you might think of feminist economics, or post-Keynesian economics. Is that, is that kind of what you had in mind? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. So uh, I think our view is that, and uh, you, you could also kind of attach to that a sort of schools of thought uh, approach to economics. So you might say Marxian economics, for example, or Austrian economics. And you can have these sort of different competing schools. And uh, my view is that students benefit a lot from courses that introduce them to those different schools of thought and different sort of packages um, as approaches to economics. And I think that's a great complement to learning economics. So what we're doing is saying this is a way of learning economics that's better than the standard way of learning economics. And if in parallel with that you have the opportunity to take a course in contrasting schools of thought or contrasting paradigms of economics, then uh, you will certainly benefit greatly from doing that. But it, it's no substitute for learning economics, which was your, your point here. Okay, and we're, we're nearing the end of the time. Why don't we just... We've got two people here. If we can take you both at once, that um, one after the other. So could you just put your hand up so that people can... Ah, not so... No, not... Well... I, I, these two here, if you don't mind. Okay, yeah, sure. Sorry, I'm waving my arm in a sort of overly gestural fashion. Um, the gentleman with the blue tie and the person next to him. Hi, um, I'm Keith from Your Castle School, and I was wondering personally which economist you agree with the most. <laughs> That's an excellently short, sharp question. Um, um, hi, I'm a first-year economics student at LSE. Um, just last week, um, our economic history department had a debate on whether there was too much mass and too little history in economics. So I was wondering where you would stand on that, and like how much, like what kind of ratio economic students should study that? Because, for example, in the University of Warwick, all students have to take um, the world economy, whereas for me at the LSE, I, I feel like I'm a math major sometimes. 
Yeah. Okay. So the first question, which economist? So the answer to that is, I definitely wouldn't name one. And I think if you look at if you look at our download our material, we have a series called Great Economists, and uh, read them all. They're fantastic. Uh, from all from different centuries, from different different countries, different sides of the political spectrum. Uh, we try to bring out the insight that can really help you to understand something interesting from each one of them. So uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't lay down um, my, my card on just one of them. Maths and history? Yes, both. And I think, I hope that was obvious from, from what I was suggesting in, in terms of uh, the course. Students definitely need, students of economics definitely need to, to learn maths. They need to see the point of doing maths as a way of clarifying and illuminating aspects of economic problems. And they definitely need economic history to provide a context within which they're studying the subject. And because the object of study in economics is the economy. And the economy has come from somewhere. And if you don't have any understanding of that, then you do end up feeling like a maths major doing applied maths. And that's, you know, the maths that's intrinsically is probably not that interesting. If you're going to do maths, you could do maths. Uh, but if you're doing economics, then you need to marry the maths with, uh, with economic history, with data, with applications, and with, uh, you know, with, with applied problem solving. Well, I'm sorry, there's still more questions, but I think we have to wind it up. Um, can the tanker be turned around? Um, we've heard, um, we've heard a, a really interesting effort to set out a new paradigm to try to do just that. It started with a serious look at long runs of historical empirical data, and it built up to pointing out the importance of embedding the understanding of the economy and of economics within it's the larger societies in which economies operate. And I think we can see the vibrancy of um, Professor Carlin's approach by the interesting discussion about piracy, which emerged in the course of the talk. I just want to end by saying that I don't think... It couldn't be more pressing, the kinds of things um, that we've heard about tonight. And I think for no-one is that more true than for progressives, because without the ability to understand the things that are going on, there's little chance to act on them. So could you all join me in thanking our speaker, Professor Wendy Carlin.